what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. I've always loved makeup. I've gone through many phases with makeup over the years, and I'm sure there are many more to come. Over the last few years, though, my makeup routine has involved wearing less. Most days, I wear a tinted moisturizer, bronzer, eyebrow tint, and mascara. And on a day I need to be camera ready, I'll add in some eyeliner and concealer. But even then, I don't want to look like I'm wearing makeup when I'm on Zoom. Now, I would love to tell you that this is all some sort of feminist resistance to the shoulds and supposed tos of the beauty industry. But it's not. It's the no makeup makeup look. Sephora, the 50-year-old beauty retailer with more than $10 billion in annual revenue, has a whole buying guide to no makeup makeup. They recommend a nine-step routine, each with a corresponding product. There's hybrid primer, dewy skin tint, sun-kissed bronzer, cream blush, natural glow highlighter, mascara, eyebrow gel, lip stain, and lip gloss. Now that's going to set you back about $250 conservatively. And of course, you're gonna want all the skincare serums and creams to make sure that your bare skin is ready for all that no makeup makeup. And that's gonna be at least another $250. Bobby Brown, the makeup artist who pioneered no makeup makeup while I was still a kid, left her own eponymous cosmetics line to start Jones Road Beauty a few years back. An ad for their Miracle Bomb followed me around Instagram for months before I finally buckled and bought that Miracle Bomb and two face pencils. Now, if you look around the Jones Road Beauty website, you're gonna see a diverse range of models. There's different ages, different complexions, different races, but they all have one thing in common. They look like an Instagram. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. In this episode, we're exploring the tricky business of selling empowerment and the female lifestyle empowerment brand, both how it's used against us and how we can avoid replicating the harm it does. This is episode two of our series, Self-Help LLC. In this series, we're taking a close look at how self-improvement has taken over our lives and businesses, often in unexpected ways. Now, a couple of quick notes before we get into it. First, this episode is not just for women. It's describing a phenomenon that has parallels across the gender spectrum. And second, we're talking about the female lifestyle empowerment brand as a certain aesthetic and marketing strategy, not as a representation of femininity or a gender essentialist perspective of women in general. So that said, what is a female lifestyle empowerment brand? So a female lifestyle empowerment brand is basically the perfect woman, like the stereotype of the perfect woman, but in a business context. 
That's Kelly Deals, a writer and culture maker who uses marketing and business strategy to question our assumptions about gender, size, disability, race, and other identities. The female lifestyle empowerment brand is what Kelly calls that certain aesthetic that sells women on the power to live their best lives through entrepreneurship. So if you close your eyes and you think the perfect woman in a business context, who pops to mind? I'll tell you the image that pops into my mind. There's a woman standing or maybe jumping in the middle of an empty street in a downtown area. She's wearing bright colors, she's holding balloons, and she has a huge grin on her face. She's thin, conventionally attractive, and blonde. Her hair is long, and it falls in loose waves around her face. Now, whether you thought of a specific person or just a general Instagram aesthetic, I think you know exactly what Kelly meant by the female lifestyle empowerment brand. As Gia Tolentino put it in Trick Mirror, quote, she looks like an Instagram, which is to say an ordinary woman reproducing the lessons of the marketplace, which is how an ordinary woman evolves into an ideal. There's nothing wrong with being tall, thin, blonde, conventionally attractive. Like, that's not the problem. What um, the female lifestyle empowerment brand does, though, is take all of those privileged statuses, which depend on being white, depend on being young, upper middle class, like various privileges, and emphasize them and turn them into marketing assets. When we choose to post an image to our Instagram feed or shoot a video for TikTok or use a photo to compose an ad, the image communicates with the audience. Every image contains layers of messages, some explicit and overt, others implicit and covert. Those messages are deliberate and constructed. Yet the way we interact with photographs and videos leaves us with the sense that we're viewing something real and objective. So when we see the image of empowerment as that tall, thin, blonde, conventionally attractive woman the one who looks like an Instagram, we start to naturalize the message that this is what empowerment looks like. This is how empowerment presents itself. It's the message of the medium. Now, if we learn to see empowerment that way, we start to recognize that we also need to reproduce the lessons of the marketplace in order to claim our own power. We need nicer clothes, better hair, finer shoes. We need to live in locations that photograph well. We need art on our walls that makes us look hip as we teach a workshop on Zoom. And we might start to recognize that the look of empowerment is expensive, exclusive, and very privileged. And not to mention a lot of work. Now, the no makeup makeup look that I was talking about earlier brings this representational reality into experiential reality. No makeup makeup allows me to show up to an event looking empowered, which is to say looking healthy, youthful, and resistant to oppressive beauty standards. Never mind the lengthy application process and the hundreds of dollars I've spent to get that look. This is what empowerment looks like. Or, as sociologist Tressie McMillan-Cottom put it, beauty isn't actually what you look like. Beauty 
is the preferences that reproduce the existing social order. Someone who doesn't look like the ideal woman, who doesn't look like an Instagram, or at the least isn't trying to look like an Instagram, doesn't belong on top of the social hierarchy. Beauty culture functions just like diet culture. That's Jessica Defino, a freelance beauty journalist who writes for the New York Times, Vogue, Allure, and other outlets. Um, and I think a lot of people may be more familiar with this idea of diet culture now and familiar with the ways in which it sells us these ideas of beauty and empowerment, but really is just exploiting us. So beauty culture functions, you know, much the same way. It's a set of beliefs that's sort of dispersed throughout society in many ways, through politics, through media, through social interactions. That tells us that, you know, one, being physically beautiful is the most important thing that you, especially as a woman, can be. And two, defines being physically beautiful through these really sexist, racist, ageist, classist, and consumerist beauty standards. Part of the way that beauty culture gets us is that it tells us that conforming to this ideal of beauty is self-love, it's self-worth, it's self-expression, it is empowerment and then proceeds to siphon away your actual sources of power through participation. So what are our actual sources of power that beauty culture steals from us? Our time, that's a huge one. Our money, we are funneling so much money into basic upkeep. Our effort, all of the effort that we put into looking a certain way, um, and our headspace, all of the time that we spend thinking about being beautiful and how to be more beautiful and what we need to do and setting up these appointments and, and all of it. And so time, money, effort, these are finite resources and we are spending them on this surface level look of empowerment instead of actually empowering ourselves. You'll hear more from Jessica later in the series. Let's get back to Kelly and how faux empowerment aesthetics function in marketing. And so what I mean is they rely more on broadcasting wealth or broadcasting whiteness or broadcasting conventional attractiveness than the substance of their work. And what they're usually doing is sending out signals of, like, like I said, like wealth and attractiveness in the place of actual substantial work. So we as humans subconsciously, when we pick up status symbols like that or differentials in power between us and other people, our automatic response is to fall into an obedience groove. And so if we're picking up those signals, we interpret that as leadership and we tend to obey. So in a buying sequence, especially a very high price buying sequence, that can be really troubling. The female lifestyle empowerment brand, really any marketing message that's aesthetic rather than substantive, serves as a constant reminder of what we lack, even as those same messages claim to offer solutions. Well, people who make success look so easy tell us that we can do it too. They're also often broadcasting all of the reasons we haven't yet achieved success. Privilege is not what we're trying to double down on, what we're trying to dismantle. So the female lifestyle empowerment brand, on the face of it, usually looks inspiring. It looks like, oh my gosh, I want to be just like her, right? She's the exception to the rule of what, of what women have. She'll have money. She'll have power, she'll have attention, she'll have affection, she'll have respect. Those are all beautiful things that every human on this planet deserves to have. And when we look at someone, we see those signals, we want to emulate and obey them so that we too can have those. 
If you were socialized as a girl, you likely learned certain codes about how to appear in order to be accepted, or rather, acceptable. Maybe you learned that high heels lent a woman credibility, or that blemishes on your face should always be covered to signal health. Maybe you internalized the attention that you got when you put on a form-fitting outfit or did your hair a certain way. This is the aesthetic labor inherent to existing as a woman in the world. My husband rolls out of bed, throws on some clothes, and goes straight into his office. Meanwhile, I shower after my workout and apply my no-makeup makeup before I can get to work. I'm reproducing the lessons of the marketplace and doing what I need to do to signal that I'm a quote-unquote successful, quote-unquote healthy woman. Simone de Beauvoir wrote, women aren't born, they're made. And as women are made, they learn the lessons of the marketplace and how those lessons translate to the boardroom, the bedroom, and the beach vacation. As women learn, they notice all the ways they do or don't match the expectations of the marketplace. They notice the things that need to change or be hidden. Now, when I was growing up, this was largely transmitted through magazines like Seventeen and Sassy. But today, it's transmitted through Instagram. And so part of the way women are made, a never-ending process, by the way, is through the coded messages of the female lifestyle empowerment brand. There's the potential for new tasks of aesthetic labor every time we look at our phones. So if someone's selling a success strategy that implicitly relies on being white, tall, thin, able-bodied, upper middle class or higher, then everyone who is not those things is, how are they going to work that status? How are they gonna work that? If you've got a recipe that relies on those qualities and you're selling it to everybody, how is a disabled trans person going to make that work? So basically it's a very limited success strategy that's only gonna work for people who already have privileged statuses. So there's a reproductive quality to it, but there's an also a compounding quality. Mm-hmm. So it's like facilitating more exclusion. Helen Gurley Brown put it this way, quote, People who are not prepossessing, not pretty, don't have a particularly high IQ, a decent education, good family background, or other noticeable assets can come a long way in life if they apply themselves. So I guess if you don't look like an Instagram, you've got some work to do. Ads rely heavily on images because of how much can be communicated through a single photo. You don't need a page full of text to explain your product anymore. Far from the text-heavy magazine ads with cringy slogans that were popular through the 1970s, marketers know how to select every last detail to communicate what they want you to know. And that's fine and good when we're presented with an ad in a magazine or YouTube commercial. We know we're interacting with marketing, even if that marketing is acting on us in covert ways. But social media has changed our spidey senses when it comes to advertising. The media environment is now saturated with images that appear to be candid snapshots or casual video diaries. But these two are ads. Now look, I know you know that. Few marketers pretend it's not that way anymore. But it doesn't matter that we know what we're looking at is an ad. What matters 
is that utter collapse of the boundary between marketing and life. When life and marketing are the same, life becomes a way of creating value. Our bodies no longer reproduce the lessons of the marketplace. They become both factory floor and marketplace. We can't help but optimize our production and presentation. Well, I mean, if we looked at sort of the statistics of women's, like women's experience in Northwestern cultures, right? Women experience far more poverty than men do. Graduate at higher levels from university, but make up like less of CEO positions than men named John, right? Like there's a whole bunch of statistics that you could look at. Women spend four to eight hours more per week on household chores when they have different sex partners, spend more time on child rearing. Um, their labor is uncompensated in the workplace often, like the, the emotional labor of like who organizes the meeting, who makes the coffee, all those things. Basically, there is more work on women's shoulders than ever before and fewer resources available to them for like sharing that labor or offloading that, that labor than ever before, especially as we've just moved through a pandemic and seen what that has done to women's careers and how many women have resigned from their careers in the last two years. Like it, the, the situation is not good, right? We So women are overwhelmed and exhausted. And whenever there's an article that's about, you know, women feeling totally overwhelmed, exhausted, overworked, it goes viral because it is almost a universal experience that women feel overwhelmed, exhausted, and overworked in our culture and under-resourced. And even like there's a huge wealth gap, not just a gender wage gap, but a huge gender wealth gap that is massive and pronounced. So literally the, this, the situation for most women in our culture is very challenging, hard and exhausting. So if that is the reality, then those brands that are signaling you can feel good, you can have money, you can get rest, you can be respected. It is mad. It's like catnip. Like I'm totally attracted to it. Kelly and I both come from working class backgrounds. Kelly told me that the women in her family were housekeepers and caregivers. She was the first person in her family to go to college. For people like us who didn't know what living without constant financial stress looked like before we became successful, these depictions of women can be valuable in their own ways. It is so seductive. Even like the Real Housewives, the franchise, the Real Housewives mm -hmm. of Anywhere, I will watch it. And seeing women on vacation, having fun with lots of money, enjoying themselves and having leisure time, money and leisure, it is, it is a foreign language to me. So it is completely fascinating and seductive. So those brands that tell us that we can have easier lives where we are loved and respected and actually have some money in our pockets, I mean, it's, it's like a hypnotic experience. Honestly, it is really valuable to me to be able to observe women not being miserable. Like it is mm. valuable to me to see women standing up for themselves. It is valuable to see women having their own resources, controlling their own money. It is like that is really a valuable lesson. It's not always coming in the healthiest package. And the, I, that's what I would look for is like, can we can we get this in a package that isn't so politically nefarious that doesn't rely on the oppression of other people. So one of the things that happens in a lot of female lifestyle and power brand narratives is there's this narrative around like, you're the queen, you deserve support. A queen is supported. And for someone who is like doing everything for everyone and is emotionally exhausted and is fitting like seven days of labor into five, you know, that is a really compelling message. 
But then when you actually think about that, think about a queen. And she'll say, every woman deserves to be the queen of your life. And she'll give you this program where you can learn how to be the queen of your life. What that actually involves is outsourcing and downloading all of your labor onto other women who are getting paid even less than you so that you can retain the excess and, you know, be the housewife on vacation. And that is not equity, right? That is just downloading oppression onto women who have less status and privilege than you do. In the first episode of this series, I unpacked the winner-loser narrative that makes up so much of the foundation of contemporary self-help advice. This narrative, as with the justification of capitalism and neoliberalism, assumes that there will always be losers. There will always be people who are in service of the winners, either directly or indirectly. And that's what Kelly's getting at here. While watching The Real Housewives can be fun and valuable in terms of watching women not being miserable, at least some of the time, this depiction of carefree, abandoned, and overwhelming wealth comes at the expense of the oppression of others. Here's how McGee put it, quote, If everyone is busy making sure they get to be all they can be, then who will clean the house, cook the dinners, diaper the babies, and nurse the infirm? Not to mention labor in the factories, sweep the streets, drive the taxis, and load the sanitation trucks. Those people selling that call that empowerment. To me, that is not empowerment. That is just patriarchy, like old patriarchy in a new bottle. Well, it's you switching place from prey to predator. And I want something better from us. I don't think the only two roles available in this world are prey or predator. Women are used to being prey. The chance to become predator is enticing. And the move from prey to predator is often marketed as the hashtag girl boss feminist move. But it's not. If you're broadcasting empowerment, empowerment is a countercultural move. So if you're talking about empowerment, implicitly there is a structure that needs to be changed. So what I call this is rebelling their way into the status quo. What she's doing then is she's saying, you can be a member of the establishment. You can be a part of the male patriarchy. You can have proximity to power and access to resources. And you can still be all of the things that women are, are, are required to be in our culture. Because that's actually the path to power for most women in our culture is beauty, conventional attractiveness, being attractive to men, you know, family, like that's the the thing that women get celebrated, even at this date in this day and age, that's the thing that women get celebrated for. So it reassures women that yes, you can do this thing without losing access to those other things that have been the way that you've survived. This is why these brands are so, so successful is because they are leveraging a political condition, but providing an individual act or um, a feeling of efficacy, like that feeling of control. And they feel so good. Like, especially when you're feeling miserable, when you see confidence and you see someone who's embodying all the things that you want, it feels really good. When they tell you, yeah, you can do this, you follow these three steps, and let's say you follow them and you actually get some good results, it feels amazing. So it's it's just so, it's so seductive, but it doesn't actually change anything for ever, for anyone else. And often it doesn't change anything for you either. Reproducing the lessons of the marketplace doesn't change anything for anyone. It merely entrenches a deeply unsatisfying status quo. The other day, I saw a well-meaning guy tweet something to the effect of, 
Why is it that human beings seem incapable of satisfaction? He was looking for a psychological, perhaps even pathological reason why we can't ever seem to feel content with enough. Unfortunately, my guy, the answer is marketing. It's not that we're incapable of satisfaction or contentment. It's that we're immersed in a media environment that teaches us to want things we'll never have and calls that empowerment. In the second half of this episode, we're going to take a look at how we can operate as marketers without relying on reproducing the status quo. Earlier, you were likely able to imagine what the female lifestyle empowerment brand looked like, even if you'd never heard the term before. You knew there was a certain female aesthetic that exudes power and success, even as it relies on privilege and status symbols to do so. Marketing is all about the image. It uses layers of meaning encoded into a single snapshot or snippet of video to draw us in and connect a product to our sense of identity. This can be done with ill intent, but it doesn't have to be. So persuasion as a field of study doesn't have to mean that we are nefarious and that we exploit people and that we trick them into making bad decisions for themselves that advantage us. It doesn't have to mean that. But a lot of the tactics that have become commonplace, especially in online marketing, you know, are actually quite chilling when you take them apart. Let's take a closer look at scarcity and how it's used to persuade prospects to buy without critical thinking. If you think about scarcity, when we are putting up countdown timers, sometimes that's really helpful for people who are neurodivergent. Super helpful, right? And sometimes um, it can also create a false sense of scarcity that tricks people into taking action. So scarcity, the way the reason scarcity works on us, every human it works on every human is because as soon as humans pick up signs of scarcity in their environment, they immediately start to gather resources because that's how we survive famines. And we might not actually be going through a famine, but if we pick up signs of dwindling resources, that instinct still kicks in to gather a dwindling resource. And so if the resource is not actually scarce, and we are using that to trick people into buying it. Think about people who are actually in real material poverty or who come from historical generational trauma and poverty. And then we use a trick like scarcity on them. It's like it just seems to me to be so predatory. Scarcity tactics tend to subvert critical thinking. Our instinct to gather resources, as Kelly puts it, overrides our ability to consider whether the thing we're buying is something we actually need or even want. Now, of course, scarcity can be real. Your program might only have room for so many clients. Your workshop might be tomorrow. Your calendar might not have any more room for consultations. Potential buyers, they need to know those things. And they need ample time and information to think critically about the offer before those organic deadlines kick in. If you have enough eyeballs on it and you have good marketing and you have good, good product, you actually don't need to do that. It marginally does increase sales, but if you take that tactic away and replace it with something else, you can still end up with the same, the same outcomes. So whenever I take away a tactic that I think is predatory, exclusionary, nefarious, <laughs> exploitative, cruel, Whenever I take away one of those tactics, I replace it with something else. Here's an example. 
It's a common tactic to run an online course sales campaign that builds excitement through emails, social media posts, and maybe a free workshop until the cart open date. On the cart open date, the marketer reveals the sales page, which is likely the first time the details of the program, including cost, has been made public. Now this is effective, for sure, but it's also predatory in that it relies on selling someone on the program emotionally before they have all of the information to buy into the program logistically. What would happen if you ran the exact same campaign, but made all of the details of the program, including cost, available before you started to actively market the program? Maybe you send a coming soon email that details who the program is for, what the program offers, how it's run, and what it costs. You might even give people the chance to opt out of marketing about the program if it's just not what they need right now. You could keep the same cart open and cart close portion of the campaign to add some structure to what can be a nerve-wracking process, both for marketer and customers. But you don't need to put the weight of the buying decision on that period. That said, marketing tactics are only one source of marketing power. And honestly, they're probably the least powerful. Everything that has been used against you can be a source of power. So if there's an identity that our culture has a bias against, that's your identity, there's a way that you can use that as a source of good information and power. So I'm a fat woman in a big body. And I've actually been interviewed about like, how does that affect your career? And usually it's no good for my career. But what is really useful is because I'm in this body, it means I have access to information about our culture that someone in a straight size body does not have access to. When you have access to different information and you know how things work in a way that other people don't, that means you're a source of creativity and good information that other people in the room are not. So anytime that creativity is required or thinking outside the box or seeing things differently, I am a huge asset in that room. And since my personal career is um, built on ideas, having this status, which you know has prejudice and stigma and people like use it against me, is actually an asset in my career though, because it means I see things differently, which is the source of the strength of my ideas. I actually ask people to think about all the things they're ashamed of, which might be internal wounds, or it might be cultural injuries that are getting visited upon us because we have marginalized identities. All of those things, literally go through them, write them all down, and then flip it. How is that a source of power? And now you have like the list of what you need to be focusing on. So I know that I need to focus on my voice, the strength of my ideas, seeing things differently, and creativity. And those are going to be the things that I rise for. The other piece is building out your analysis. And this comes from um, the feminist, Dr. Barbara J. Love, who has a formula about how to build out a liberatory consciousness. So you need to build your own analysis about how the world works, about how systems work, how power and identities work, so that people can't tell you what to do, so that you can freely make decisions. And what happens when we're first sort of newly awakened to power and structures and oppression in our culture is we get very obedient and we start taking rules from people who we think are more fluent in the language of justice than we are. And sometimes those people are not actually the best actors. <laughs> so we need, and that's not freedom. Taking, 
Taking orders from one side or the other side, neither are a freedom. I want us to be able to independently come to our own conclusions. So build out your analysis about power identity systems so that you can make independent decisions for yourself. Every time you're scrolling along and see someone who looks like an Instagram, remember that there is a message embedded in that image. It's a message about power, identity, and market forces. It's the lessons of the marketplace, the existing social order behind a Polaroid filter of self-expression. Empowerment isn't for sale, only the status quo. Are your practices creating realities where other people don't have what they need to survive? And is that how you're creating your leisure? Then something's out of balance. But there's a way to create flourishing for you that doesn't compromise other people's well-being. And that's the spot we want to aim for. Find out more about Kelly Deals and sign up for her rich Sunday love letter at kellydeals.com. That's Kelly, D-I-E-L-S.com. And read more of Jessica DeFino's beauty industry critical journalism at jessicadefino.substack.com. The look of empowerment is one of the ways self-help proliferates in today's marketplace. So is expertise, but not the kind of expertise that doctoral degrees, professional certifications, or fancy titles denote. Today, the internet is full of experience-based experts, especially in the self-help and personal growth space. Next week, I'm going to introduce you to sociologist Patrick Sheehan, who recently published his research on the paradox of the self-help expert. Now, experience-based experts are a trickier group, um, harder to name, right? Their credibility tends to be more unstable and less generally recognized, but they can have credibility nonetheless, right? If you're excited about the Self-Help LLC series, you're going to love my new book. In What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting, I unpack the historical, psychological, and economic systems that impact the way we relate to goal setting and offer a radically different approach to growth and planning. Find What Works wherever books are sold. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. This episode was written by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt and me. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. All of the music in today's episode is from Track Club by Marmoset, a certified B Corp. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples in what is now called Central Pennsylvania. The Yellow House sits on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. 